Hello, welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious food and travel writer who's toured and tasted her way around more than 60 countries. Join me now as I talk to the people who make travelling and eating such a delicious adventure. Hey there, and thanks for joining me for another episode of Extra Virgin Food and Travel. My guest today is one of Australia's most successful restaurateurs. Tony Kelly has carved out a restaurant empire on the Sunshine Coast with the Tony Kelly Group now boasting a portfolio of an astounding 10 venues, from restaurants and cafes to coffee bars and bottle shops. If you've been to the Sunshine Coast, chances are you've eaten in a Tony Kelly venue. So how has he managed so successfully in a climate that has included economic downturns, COVID, and also just the growing competition. I'm going to find out today. Welcome, Tony Kelly. Thank you for joining me. Hey, Natasha. Thanks for having me. You make me blush for that introduction, I tell you. <laughs> Tony, we have listeners from all over the world on Extra Virgin, some of whom may not be familiar with Australia's Sunshine Coast, where you're based. Can you situate it and describe it for them? Yeah, like paradise is probably the easiest way to describe <laughs> us. It's a place where I grew up. So it's about, it's on a good day, it's about an hour and 20 minutes north of Brisbane. So we've got an office in Marichidor and in Mooloolaba, which is about half an hour south of Noosa. So right on the Sunshine, the Sunshine Coast is situated right on the, right on the coastline. Mm. It's a, very much a beautiful part of the world, but it's divided into sort of the coastal area and then up into the hinterland. It's a real food bowl. So, well, you know, we've, we've got, Wagyu cattle growing in the hinterland, and we've also got access to some of the best seafood out of Mooloolaba, tuna, prawns, and from a chef's perspective, it's a pretty cool place to live, that's for sure. Yeah, it's a pretty cool place to holiday from a non-chef's perspective as well, Tony. One hundred percent. It's a nice part. Well, after growing up here and and then moving away for some time, mm. it was always in the back of my head that I needed to raise my kids on the Sunshine Coast because it's certainly a great place to work and it's an even more beautiful place to live. Absolutely. So you started out in hotels and I know there's a very big difference between working in hotel restaurants and standalone restaurants. Yeah. What do you think it taught you yeah. uh, starting out in hotels? Probably structure was the main thing. The I worked for Hyatt where Hyatt had a, a substantial hotel in Coolum. It operated nine venues in the hotel, so nine restaurants, including in-flight catering that had its own butchery department, had a home pastry kitchen. We did banqueting and then the nine standalone venues within the resort. So there was it was very much a structured approach to, to cooking. From an apprentice training perspective, we had a, a program that, when you started your apprenticeship at the Hyatt, you started off in in-flight catering, learning food safety and hygiene, and then you went into the butchery department and you learned how to to break down whole beasts. Then you went into the fishmonger, and you worked your way all the way up until when you finished your apprenticeship, you were you were a fourth year apprentice in the fine dining restaurant within the resort. So. I suppose structure is the, the most important mm. thing it taught me. And there was an element of the, well, I would say a large element of the restaurant, the restaurants at the Hyatt were were driven and, and captained by 
the kind of really old school European chefs. So you you learnt the, the the vigor of consistency and respect, and you know it was it was, a, it was a tough apprenticeship, but I wouldn't change it for the world. That's for sure. Sounds like a very uh, thorough one as well. Learning all those different aspects of working in the kitchen. Yeah, it was great, and I mean, if you look at it now. From an apprentice perspective, it'd be really hard to try and find something that even went close to the training that that I was I was I had access to when I was an apprentice chef. So it's it was it was really unique and thorough, and even down to the stage where our executive chef used to make us do monthly appraisals, where we would have to write assignments and then we'd cook dishes and yeah it was really good i mean the the training was exceptional on top of your daily work that you needed to get done it was pretty intense but the outcome was great i mean i felt like it armed me for the real world when we when you left the hotel and when i left and i started working in restaurants it sort of gave me such a great grounding and 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 made me really think about you know, when you're setting up a restaurant and you're setting up a kitchen to make sure you get that structure right from the get-go, you know, you're laying the foundations hopefully for a for a really good operation. Mm. You also worked on a cruise liner and we hear a lot both about the food and the diners on cruises. How did you find yeah. that? Exactly what you've probably heard. It was shithouse. So <laughs> the, 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 food, the, the food is generally is appalling. And the the customers, it's like pigs to a trough. So it was, I was I was really fortunate. I worked for Disney, which I, I sort of encourage anybody, in particular with small children, to to go on the Disney cruise ships because mm. generally in the in the world of food on on cruise ships, Disney's got a fairly decent reputation. But it was very much a family friendly boat. But mm. we we have thirteen thirteen hundred customers on the boat and 800 crew it was a massive operation I, I was pretty fortunate I did on my contracts there I only spent a very short period of time in the casual restaurants and they're the ones that sort of get the bad rap I finished my my two contracts working in the fine dining restaurant on top of the cruise ship which was called Palo and that was adults only and the food was really great it was it was it was a formal venue it was italian which was it sort of sat really well with with what i'd learned through my apprenticeship and i got to kind of serve people that had a really good appreciation for great food which was basically every other restaurant on the boat was the exact opposite to that so it was good I, i'd never i don't think i've had a job that where i've worked as hard as that but being in you know three different four different countries a week was certainly good fun as a young fella I can imagine that would be full on. So, Tony, yeah. after you worked on Hayman Island and then yep. you opened your own wine bar on the Sunshine Coast, then you came to Brisbane for a while to work at Stokehouse, which yep. won a couple of hats while you were there. Then you went back up the coast and eventually you started opening hospitality businesses. Your first was a bit of a departure from the more kind of fine dining you were used to doing. Tell us about the start of your Sunshine Coast empire. Yeah, look, I suppose I should probably touch base on Wine Bar, which, uh, which was my very first business that I ever owned. And I we, we, we had that for, geez, it was about eight or nine years. And it was a beautiful venue. And my wife and I managed it really well. It was all about the food, all about the service. It was probably the, mm. the quintessential first restaurant that you would ever open where 
making money was very a very distant thought. You know, it made no difference to me whether or not we made a penny or didn't make a penny. So, which is probably the opposite way I think right now. So it was it was a great grounding into into restaurants and it sort of established us on the Sunshine Coast as uh, being quality operators. Then um, the GFC come along and it gave me a proper hiding. So we were fortunate in the first three months of the GFC to sell the restaurant. So we, we it didn't take everything from us, but mm. it sort of, it gave us enough of a touch up to, we had to sell our house and we, we copped a bit of a beating from it and we paid all of our bills. And then we, uh, we moved to Brisbane with our tail between our legs. But again, it, it, it it probably set me up for one of the pinnacles of my career was working for the Van Handels. Now, I, I remember the day, like yesterday, when Frank uh, Van Handel and Peter McMahon rang me up and said, we, we'd love to, we'd love you to take the reins of the Stokehouse. And coming from owning my own business, you, you sort of, you're a little bit more frugal than the ag, the average exec chef. So to go down there and set up shop and, and to have the, the opportunity to open a venue like the Stokehouse was was an amazing opportunity. We would never in a million years have thought it was going to be as busy as what it was. I always talk about highlights of my career. Yes, Stokehouse was a two-hat restaurant. It was fabulous. You know, the venue was exceptional, but doing the numbers that we would do, it would not be uncommon for us to do 250 or 300 covers for lunch, mm. do the same for dinner. On top of that, we'd do a 70-pack functions upstairs and make money and of a two-hat standard, it's extremely rare to see you doing that that volume of food in such an exceptionally successful business and to get the accolades that we did. It was really unusual. So that that was great. I mean, we being in Brisbane, doing that was was one of the best times of my life. Doing it with two small kids under tow was very hard. I tell you, <laughs> I, I remember when we opened the restaurant, we opened it in, on Melbourne Cup Day and my wife gave me a kiss on the cheek and she said, I'll see you next year. And it certainly, she wasn't far from it. I tell you, I don't think I've got my head above water until February the next, the following year. So, but it was a good ride. It was, it was great, but it was always, I always knew that at some stage I was going to be back home on the Sunshine Coast. And, you know, we, I'd, I'd done a couple of years in Brizzy and we'd, we'd achieved great things at the Stokehouse. And that's when Peter rang me up and he just signed a deal to, uh, to open Noosa Beach House at, um, at the Sheraton Noosa, which was an opportunity for me to, to come home. And then how did you start your own businesses after that? I guess a couple of things. Going back to the hotel world, certainly it's sort of it's cemented the fact that I, I don't have the – my DNA doesn't allow me to work for anybody anymore, I don't think. So well, it, I felt that I was too young to be a executive chef of a hotel. Mm. You know, I, I still had so much more that I wanted to achieve in business and in restaurants. So we I've, we, we got Noosa Beach House established. We got the, the, the hotel reopened. Um, they did a $20 million refurb up there. And then we decided to open a burger restaurant back when the burger fad was was sort of pumping. So that was an opportunity for me to, we, I didn't have any money. I didn't have two cents to rub together. We were still recovering from the GFC at that stage. And mm. so we, we we basically tipped everything we owned into a small burger shop in in Ocean Street in Marichidor. And the landlord, I knew very, very well, and he trusted me there. So he cut me a great deal on a lease and what we thought would be a, probably 150 to 200 burgers a week turned out to be seven or 800 burgers a week. And 
that was sort of our, that was what kick-started it. And after we opened that one burger shop, we fast forward a year and we'd franchised that. We'd had mm. nine, nine burger shops franchised around Australia. We'd opened a, a, a donut operation called Donut Boys, which we again, we franchised and, and Junk, which was at my first foray into Asian food where we had a good friend of mine, Daniel Jarrett, came down and, and we, we opened the, basically we took the same concept as what Hello Harry, the burger, the burger op- offer was, and we, we, we added a, an Asian influence to that. So it was very much Asian street food, nothing sort of over $10. And we concentrated on super tasty, high volume, fast service style venue. And, and it was a real hit. And, you know, that, that sort of kick-started me into it now. You know, fast forward to today, um, we ended up selling, I sold my share of that business to my then best friend and took a few months off and I found myself sitting at home pondering life and that's when uh, I thought, well, it's time to get back into it and we we, we looked for a site and the wharf at Mooloolaba was just about to undergo a big transformation and that was that had such, you know, presence in my life as a kid on the Sunshine Coast mm-hmm. that the opportunity to, to revitalise the wharf was... Uh, was a carrot that I couldn't resist, so we jumped in there and Rice Boy was born in 2017. And Rice Boy has always been incredibly popular. I mean, there is always a line there. What's the secret to that? It's a juggernaut. Like, it, it's funny, like, we we often talk about the fact that you can have a fantastic venue in a fantastic location serving great food with great service and it can still fail. And then there's other venues that really don't make any sense. Now, I... I'd like to sit back and say that you know Rice Boys the secret has got the secret sauce on it, but mm. it it's really I, I can't answer that. It's I think it's an it's just a it's it's a mishmash of everything. I suppose it's it's thirty years of hospitality dumped into one venue. We don't we don't offer any service at all. You line up, there's no booking, so there's a there's a bum on the seat every minute of the day. We, you've got to order at the counter and we, we can employ unskilled labour just to take the food from the kitchen to your table. Mm. We, don't, we don't offer a big drinks list at all. I think we've got four, four beers. We've got six, six different wines by the glass or by the bottle and we've got a, a, a decent cocktail list. But we, it's all, we, we, made the, we made the call early in the piece that we were going to focus on a really, really strong Asian influence, punchy flavors, mm. where we, we don't want to, we don't like the word traditional. So we're very much round eyes cooking Asian food. So nothing's traditional, nothing's really spicy. Everything's made for, for our taste, not a throwback to tradition. So mm. you take the, the muscle mum curry. Now it's a muscle mum in every sense of the world, but we don't call it muscle mum because it's really not. So we call it a, a coconut braised beef curry, which is essentially a muscle mum, but we, we dress it and garnish it our own way and it's not super spicy, It's mm. but it's still really rich and delicious and everything that a muscle mum should be. But by not having any service component to it and not taking bookings, we were able to keep all of our prices quite low. And I think everybody... I think that if you ask the general population on the Sunshine Coast, they really see great value in Rice Boy. Mm. And I think that's been very much the key to our success. In fact, it's been so successful that you've had to open uh, a sort of, would you consider it to be an extension of Rice Boy upstairs? Yes. So for, for years, ever since we, ever since day one that Rice Boy opened, we had a raft of people saying, 
I'm happy to pay extra if I can make a reservation. Yeah. Or why don't you do another venue and, and offer table service? And, geez, I'd go to Rice Boy even more if there was a decent wine list. And we've listened to this since 2017. So when the opportunity came up to, to take some more space and do RBs, it kind of made a lot of sense. Now, RBs is only a small venue. It's 60 mm-hmm. seats with a beautiful private dining room. And it sits really in the bowels of the wharf and and basically an old warehouse. So the rent's really affordable. So it allows us to only trade five days a week. We're only open for dinner. It's a small team, but we've got the best in the business running it. So we've got Nick Blake, who Nick Blake was one of our first chefs, uh, first head chefs at at Rice Boy working under Mitch Smith is one of my business partners there. Mm. Eliza Malloy, she's one of my business partners. She looks after front of house at, at Rice Boy. She she hired Ben Hines, who he's ten years Rockpool Bar and Grill Melbourne. So between the front of house and the kitchen, mm-hmm. we had the people. And when the opportunity came up, we were like, "We've got to do this." And and it's a it's very much a tribute to what has been a lot of hard work went into to Rice Boy, but it's kind of a place where you can if you if you want to get waited on and you want a nice wine list and. You want to be able to make a reservation and secure a booking without winding up. That's the place to go to. That's me. Yeah, me too. <laughs> we'll have to have dinner together there one night. Yeah, we? absolutely. Now you also have, I mean, you have another couple of Asian-focused restaurants plus yep. an Italian, which is also incredibly ex- successful. Just give us a really quick run through your other venues on the Sunshine Coast. Yeah, sure. So Mitch Mitch Smith, who's my business partner and exec chef of Rice Boy, and Eliza Malloy, they're they're two of my most trusted colleagues now. We, we've they've been both of them worked for me when when I opened Junk Up, and we're we're, we're sort of joined at the hip. Us three, we're like family. We've got together. We've got Spiro, which is a sort of a modern. Greek restaurant also located at the wharf. And then we've got two throw-offs of uh, Rice Boy, which is Giddy Geisha in Marich- in the new Marichador CBD. And we've also got Piggyback, which is a fantastic uh, venue out in Palmwoods, Palmwoods, which sits on about an acre and a half of land. It's got a beautiful garden at the back and it's in an old house. It's really cool. So we've got sort of all bases covered. We've got the hinterland covered. We've got the, the CBD covered and we've got the Malulabar waterfront covered with Rice Boy. So we've got our, our Asian food extends over the a pretty good catchment of the Sunshine Coast. We've just got to have a look at Noosa and Caloundra now and we're sorted. <laughs> and then so world that's domination. Our, that's our... <laughs> and then on top of that, we've, we open Market Bistro and Market Wine Store, which is next to Giddy Gosha. That's both in the Marichador CBD. And we've I've got Udlo General Store, which was a beautiful old building, which is about five minutes from, from Palmwoods, which is right sits on the right at the base of the hinterland. Mm. That's sort of like a a cafe. It sits in a hundred year old building, absolutely beautiful. And Bocker's the the latest venue that we've opened, which is um, or one of the latest RVs is the latest one. But mm. Bocker we opened over at Bockerina Beach, which sort of sits between Lullabar and Cleandra. Mm. So, and as you said, it's every day that that restaurant surprises me. So Harry Harry Lilai, who came on board with us, he's he's ex. A Melbourne chef. He'd done a lot of work with Greco in, in um, Howard Smith Wharf down in Brisbane. Uh, but his claim to fame is he owned Chaconis in Melbourne for years and years and years. And the, it's always, as, an, as a young, inspiring chef, it was always one of the restaurants that if you went to Melbourne, you should try Chaconis. Mm. So to have Harry come up and open Market Bistro for us, 
as soon as he started cooking um, within the group, we, we knew that we had to open a restaurant together and Italian food's his wheelhouse. So when the opportunity came up over at Boccarina Beach, we grabbed it. And without a doubt, that's been our biggest restaurant opening since we've, um, since we've kicked off. It's, it's a beast and it's busy every single day. Yeah. Well, I'm exhausted just listening to you. I don't think you're in the kitchen much anymore, Tony, right? Do you miss it? No. Yeah, I do. I, I, I guess if you see me in the kitchen these days, you could pretty much consider there's a significant problem going on. <laughs> I, I, I sort of I class myself as a bit of a puppeteer. So I'm, I'm working daily out of an office, which is out of my wheelhouse. So by two o'clock, I'm, I'm starting to tire not like the old days where I'd be on my feet for 16 hours and they'd be looking for somewhere to go for a beer. So <laughs> I, I still get in there from time to time. We, we've got an opportunity to do some great dinner parties and, you know, I, 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 the, I suppose the fun bit for me now is I, I cook when I want to, not mm. when I have to. Mm. And with three, three, dog, three, three kids and a wife at home, I'm, I'm cooking dinner basically every night for my family, which is, in a great, which is great for me. I'm in a good place. We've got great people working for us and the transition from, I suppose, chef to restaurateur was was challenging because you, you have to let go. But um, when you've got fantastic people at the helm of each restaurant in the kitchens like we do, it certainly makes that much, much easier. Mm. Well, it sounds like it's a bit of a stuffed juggernaut. How many chefs do you have working across all of the restaurants? Uh, that, the chefs change, I guess, through the seasons. But we're we're pretty lucky because we're we're not too seasonal in any of our venues. But it's sort of we average between 110 to probably 130 chefs, I reckon. Uh, in peak period over Christmas time, there would have been maybe even a few more than that. We've got we've got a rate. We sort of hover around that 400 staff mark, so it's a big business. You know, we've got it's a it's a it's a bit of a monster. So on a daily basis, there's always a HR discussion had put it that way. So. Well, speaking of that, how do you keep your chefs from moving on? Do you have any schemes in place like profit share or shares in the business, or how do you keep them motivated? Yeah, so basically, in every one of our venues, we we well, I, I'm happy to give away equity in the business to to the restaurant manager and the chef. So, um, you know, which which some people would find would consider that to be madness, but for me, I found it to be such an amazing tool because people want to work for something other than just a paycheck mm-hmm. at the end of the week. So, not only are they work, they they feel as though they're working for themselves, but also the big picture is. If one day um, we sell the restaurant or we sell the group, then they're working for something that's more of a bigger picture. So we're not greedy. I'm not motivated by money. So to see these guys climb through the ranks and then get a piece of the pie, that's something that's so rewarding it's hard to explain. So somebody like Mitch Smith, who Mitch, both Mitch and Eliza came from nothing like me, Mitch was a sous chef at Junk and, you know, proved himself there. And as soon as he got the reins of Junk when Daniel left us, he he stepped up and, to, to be honest with you, he, he's he's one of the greatest, if not the greatest Asian food chef that I've ever worked with in my life. And to see him create an empire of his own, I mean, he's my business partner in Arby's, Rice Boy, Spiro, Giddy Gasher and Piggyback. And this guy's... You know, he deserves all the success in the world, and so does Eliza. And uh, 
we do the same thing in all of our venues. So, you know, we've got Luke Stringer at Market Bistro and at Bocker and Harry, Harry at Bocker. I mean, the, 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 it's, it's all part of the big puzzle and the big picture to try and get these people working for something other than a paycheck or inspiration. It's that they, they really treat it as though it's their own business. Yeah, that's great. There's been a lot of there's been a lot of talk about mental health in the hospitality industry of late. How do you ensure that they don't burn out when you've got such a high volume and presumably stressful uh, business? Yeah, it's hard. It's I guess for me, we rely so heavily on our managers to make sure that they're they're hands on in the business. A, a vast majority of our businesses, our full time staff work a four day week. We use a a off an external HR company. So they they don't work for me. They're 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 contracted to me. So it's it, it why I make that point very clear is that they said they give me a set of parameters that I have to abide by or else um they won't do business with me. So mm-hmm. they monitor staff hours, they monitor um workplace health and safety for us. They they really keep me accountable and keeps everybody's hours in check so if if you Natasha were working for us and you do more than you know 42 hours three weeks in a row mm-hmm. I would get a phone call from the HR department and they would say this week she has to do 35 mm-hmm. there's no you know so they really hold me accountable and because of that we we, we really find ourselves in a, in a in a reasonably decent spot where we don't we don't see too much burnout mm-hmm. it's always it's always hard in our game because it's hard to find a, a really passionate good exec chef or head chef or even sous chef who who all they want to do is the very best food that they can now it's really hard to try and keep those guys to a 40 hour week because often you'll see them wanting to come in on their days off or wanting to do more or come in a bit earlier and sometimes it's really hard to keep them away to be honest with you and that's where the four-day weeks worked really well for us especially the the young guys with families at home Mm. and we tried really desperately hard to keep um to to make sure we keep our fingers in the pie and, and, you know, care for people's families because it is super important. We want to create legacy on the Sunshine Coast where when we first kicked off restaurants, we we said from the get-go, we want to be the, the very best employers we possibly can be on the coast. And I think we've come some way to, to, to achieving that. Mm, that's excellent. It's really good to hear. Tony, I canvassed some people on Facebook for some questions they'd like to ask you. Some of them are hospo people, others are just diners. So if you don't mind, yep. we'll, we'll um, yeah, go, go through those. Yep. So first question comes from Danielle and she asks, what are your current labour and food costs? Yeah, challenging. So we, well, I'll dig into this one um, for you. We we run what we call a revenue journal weekly, which is we take the total food sales and total beverage sales and we we divide our total food purchase and total beverage purchases into that every week. So every Wednesday, all of my managers get a revenue journal which shows a flash food cost, a flash beverage cost, and the front of house labour cost and back of house labour cost. Now, this tool is so critical for us because we won't wait until the end of the month before we realise that we might have a food cost problem. So we monitor it weekly, which from a back end, it takes a lot of work, but from a success perspective, it doesn't give us, it, it gives us no opportunity to fail because food costs and labour costs can be controlled with a pen and, and rostering. So from, from a food cost perspective, we run our food cost at 30% in, in 
in Bocca, which is our Italian restaurant where we do a lot of pizza and pasta. We run it at 28. But we, we, we've got a saying that we live and die by, and that is sell it for what you have to, not what you can. So, And that's where Rice Boy has been so successful. We run Rice Boy at 30%. But it's the food cost is challenging at the moment because the prices are fluctuating so much. Mm. I really do believe that right now we're turning a – we're turning a corner and we're beca- it's becoming a buyer's market now. So our suppliers have to work even harder than what they have in the last couple of years to get to get our business. And we're really very much pushing pushing back on our guys to, to chase better deals. So I suppose the short answer to that is 30% of food cost. From a labour cost perspective, we break it down into front of house and back of house. We run front of house at in our formal restaurants that offer table service. Uh, we run at 14% and um, the kitchen at 21, um, so 35 overall. Um, and in our fast casual where we don't offer any service, um, 20% um, in the kitchen and 12% from a house, so 32 overall. Oh, well, thank you for that. So the next question comes from Fiona and she asks, what are your thoughts on the Michelin Guide and its absence in Australia? Do you think it's a missed opportunity to attract overseas visitors who use it as a planning tool? I suppose the short answer is yes. I've, I've, I guess I, I've transitioned out of that stage of my life where I care too much about awards and hats and Michelin, Michelin stars and, and those types of things. I, I, I do, I do yearn for the day where people like Ben Shuri and 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 those types of guys who who pour so much into such an amazing venue, Peter Gilmore. I mean. I can't help but think that it, they probably deserve the Michelin Guide to come to Australia, and mm. I don't doubt that it would add an element of um, tourism to that. So it's it's probably less from my perspective, but from a from a general hospitality and and restaurant viewpoint, I think that it would be great for it to come to Australia. And my my understanding is that it came pretty close before COVID, but maybe COVID put a you know pump the brakes on that a bit. But I wouldn't be surprised in the next couple of years if that does happen. Mm. Okay. Michael wants to know what are the key skills you look for in a manager? I suppose attitude's the big one. I don't know that's that's probably said too frequently, but we 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 take the we take the approach that we can we can train and teach you and basically all the things that we need to teach you in, but hospitality and service are two very different things. We can we can teach service and the sequence of service in any of our venues we can teach that but but hospitality is one of those things that makes you feel as though you're walking into somebody's living room of their house and having dinner so if you're if you're a dining room manager we, we look for how approachable you are how 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 what's your nature are you edgy are you soft even down to the stage where i know that if you come in for an interview with me and you want to be the market bistro restaurant manager and you come in in a suit it's, you're probably not going to be suited to it because mm. especially if you've come from Melbourne and Sydney because we're not yeah, the Sunshine Coast is not that way we, we I mean we we serve a, a pretty high caliber of food and we offer a, quite a high caliber of service at Market Bistro but mm. it's certainly not stuffy like our, our waiters and waitresses walk around in in sneakers and we don't have a uniform we offer an apron we let people really express themselves through through their uniform so mm. it's I suppose the, the 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 number one thing is attitude 
It's and it depends very much on the role. Market Bistro re- relies on a, a really strong wine knowledge and food knowledge. Where somebody like a restaurant manager, Rice Boy Alana, who's our restaurant manager over there, she's she's got the attitude, or she certainly portrays the attitude as though she's mum. So she basically looks after forty five or fifty young kids running around looking for table numbers at Rice Boy, which is a very very difficult job. But I suppose it depends on what venue you're in, mm. but it certainly comes down to attitude is the number one thing, that's for sure. And, you know, what do you want? What, what's your five-year plan? I mean, if you come to me and you're you're a career hospitality person and, you know, you've got a great attitude and you tell me that you want to you own your own venue in the next few years, well, that's music to my ears because I see that as opportunity. If a venue comes up then and we've got great, we've got a great space that's, that's available and we've got a, a real good chef waiting in the wings as well and we've got a restaurant manager that wants a piece of the pie, well, you know, my job then is to try and join the dots and see if we can um, make that happen. What a great attitude. So Emma Kate asks, what's the balance that you've struck between sourcing locally and directly and from the central markets or using an agent? And what are the barriers that you see to going 100% local? I suppose the hard bit with going 100% local, and you'd be hard-pressed to find a chef that that doesn't want to go 100% local, Mm. but the reality of it is somewhere like Rice Boy uses 7,000 bunches of coriander a a month. Mm. So if if I was to go local and go to any number of herb farms, or we've got a guy on our street that sells, I'm very fortunate, I've got some acreage in Palmwoods, but... He, he grows herbs out there. He wouldn't grow 7,000 bunches of coriander a month. So it's really hard to try and find a, a balance between, you know, commercial reality and and I suppose that that real love affair that, that really diehard hospitality people have with locally sourced produce. Mm. Now, we, we, we try and do a good mix of that and, ha- and have a good mix. And when we use, we use some Wagyu beef that's grown up in the hinterland, which is fantastic. We've got that on the RB's menu, but they don't, they, they don't have nearly enough product that could service all of our restaurants. So we take the local stuff where we can. And then, you know, for, for our everyday commodity lines, then we just use, we use local independent companies. So we use Suncoast Fresh for our fruit and vegetables, our meat. We use Kilcoy Global. We've got a great relationship with those guys. And we use Global Food and Wine for our, our dry store line. So we we do a lot with, with local family-owned businesses, and that's really important to us. And our ethos has always been service and support, number one. So all quality of product, number one. So the product's just got to be exceptional because I do believe that the very best restaurants have just got the very best suppliers yeah. who – if I, get, if I go over and above to, to attract, I know the Kilcoy Ebony range of beef that we serve at Market Bistro, I know that nobody else can get that. 100% of that is exported apart from what we get. Wow. So that's that's been that's been three years of blood, sweat and tears getting a relationship with the owner of Kilcoy Global to be able for him to trust us that we're going to do the right thing with his product. He he then has got an opportunity to to bring in international clients to Market Bistro to to eat the product in a in a restaurant setting. So it's a bit of a win-win, but some people just don't want to go to that take that extra effort to to find those deals. So we go quality of product first and foremost number 1. The quality of product has to be exceptional. Then number 2 is the service and support from our suppliers. Now if you can you can offer us great service and support and you can pull us out of the weeds at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon and tick. Mm. And then a distant third is price. Now, the price is not the cheapest. It's not the most expensive. It's just the market price. So that way we can 
we've got opportunity then to lean on the first point and the second point. So we never really go into a supplier wanting the cheapest possible product. We want we, we, everybody needs to make a make a living and everybody needs to have a win. But um, the the quality of product and the service and support are definitely our two biggest drivers. Now, Michael asks, Tony, why don't restaurants serve cheaper wine options for those who don't want to pay too much for the bottle? He says, by all means, make a markup on cost price, but offer cheaper options. Yeah, I guess for us, going back to the three points that I just said, it's really hard to try. I mean, if you take if you take the the simple multiplier, if you if you try and you know round it to round numbers of a thirty percent cost of goods, a ten dollar bottle of wine is thirty dollars. Now, if you if I asked you to try and find me a fantastic Pinot Noir for ten dollars, you would struggle. So. The, the reality of it is, the commercial reality of it is, is that most restaurants, Market Bistro, for example, we work on an 8% bottom line. So if you if you buy a $10 bottle of wine if I, and I make 8% of that by selling it at, with a 70% markup, there's really nothing in it for me. So by the time you take out your staff costs and your rent and all the rest of it, it's it gets to a stage where... I get the cheaper wine option, but Rice Boy is probably the closest thing I can say to that where there's none of our wine in that venue, in any of our Asian venues, has got a has got a cost price of greater than $13. So if you take into account to try and find a decent Chardonnay or a decent Savion Blanc for $13 is, is challenging. Now, I think that a lot of people believe that the margins in alcohol are way way better than food but the reality of it is the margins are exactly the same we look for a 30 percent cost of goods in beverage where where beverage can be more profitable is it takes way less labor to serve a beer than what it does to cook a steak so if you imagine for us if we turn over a thousand dollars worth of revenue in our beer garden because everybody's out there drinking schooners of kieran it only takes one bartender to serve you know, a hundred beers. So, but if I want to do a thousand dollars worth of food, I've got chefs prepping it from six o'clock in the morning. Then I've got chefs serving it. And then I've got waiters taking it from the table, from the kitchen to the table. So the, the only, the only upside to beverage is the reduction of labor. The cost of goods is the same as food. So I guess it's really hard. One, it's really hard to find some varietals of wine, great wine. That's, that's cheaper. But where we've tried to combat that is in the in our bottle shops. So where we've got a general license, which is at Market Bistro and at Bocca, and we've got the wine store attached to that, you can go into those bottle shops and you can buy a bottle of wine in there, pay a corkage and bring it into the restaurant. So you you can essentially go into the bottle shop and buy a bottle of Bifar Chardonnay for $60 and drink it in the restaurant. Then that bottle of Chardonnay, if you were to go to any other restaurant, would be $200. So I guess that's where we've combated that. And it's we've had great success with it, that's for sure. And I, I, I would be lying if I was to say to you that I haven't thought about, is there a model similar to that where we can drop a bottle shop very close to all of our venues and offer the same thing? Because it's it's certainly been a, it's, it's been a massive upside to, to those venues. Mm, okay. So Emma asks, and I don't know if you've watched The Bear, does it resonate and is it, uh, as is 
intense and stressful and harder way to make money as it seems from that program. Have you watched The Bear? I haven't watched it, but um, I'm I'm pretty keen to. Um, it's great. Look, it's mm. it's it's certainly it's one of those things, I guess, that I've got a I've got a 14 year old son at home who, you know, I've tried so desperately hard to beat out hospitality from him, but <laughs> I I know very well that it's a it's a fruitless conversation. He's going to he has there's zero doubt that he's going to be in the kitchen. So one of the, one of the things that I say to any young person who wants to either be in restaurants or in in the kitchen is if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Now, I'm very fortunate that I've been in this game for 30 years, 30 plus years, and it it doesn't feel as though I go to work every day. Yes, there's days where it's super stressful and there's been there's been periods of my life which has really given me a hiding, but you don't you don't enjoy the good times if you don't have the bad times as well. So I'm I feel like I'm a real hunter. Like I, I, I like the bad and I like the good. And I just hope that there's more good than bad. But I'm I like that. I don't know whether that's a that's problematic because most people would run away. But I, I love what I do. There's certainly easier ways to make money than in restaurants. But you know, when you when you go to work every day and you love what you do, then it certainly makes it a bunch easier. Mm. All right, Adam asks, and I really would like to know this too. Are you planning to expand your empire south, hopefully into Brisbane? Yeah, potentially. I mean, never say never. I've had several conversations in Brisbane in the last two years. We came close to buying a freehold property in, in Brizzy down near Albion, which we, we nearly had it under contract, which would have been great. And we were looking at a bit of a freehold play down there. I really like that area. I think it's fantastic. We had a conversation with the casino early on in the piece when that was coming out of the ground. So I would probably be lying if I'd say never, but we'll, we'll wait. We're super patient and we'll We'll do it when we've got the right people for the position because right now if I if I turned around to any of my key leaders and said, Do you want to move back to Brisbane? I reckon they'd chase me <laughs> chase me away with a stick. But you know, ne- never say never. I reckon there's certainly opportunity down there and the food scene in Brisbane is as strong as it ever has been before. Mm, absolutely. All right. I am gonna ask you some of my own questions now. Just a quick fire sure. handful. Yep. Tony, what was the first cookbook you ever owned? My father gave me the Raffles Hotel Cookbook when I was 16 and I thought it was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. It was like the the, the old school hotel where all the chefs had the big tall hats on and they all had neckerchiefs and it was it was it was very cool and I still treasure that cookbook that takes pride of pride of place on my shelf at home. How all good. right. Next question, where and what is the most memorable meal you've ever had? Oh, geez, that's a tough one. You'd probably have to say Back, oh, geez, it would have been 10 or 15 years ago, maybe even longer. Yeah, probably 15 years ago, I was very fortunate to have dinner at the French Laundry and it stands alone as one of the most amazing things that I've ever seen and been a part of in my life. I can vividly remember driving into Yonkville in the Napa Valley and seeing the building and I had the cookbook and it was it was like... You know, it was like a kid in Disneyland. It was crazy. And then 15 courses of food cooked by Thomas Keller was, was certainly a, a memorable experience. And I've only just come back from San Francisco and the Napa. And I didn't eat at the French Laundry, but I stayed right behind it. And it's as beautiful as it is beautiful today as what it was 15 years ago. That's for sure. That sounds special. What about, Tony, a food trend that you absolutely loathe? I hate the the whole 
gluttony of the Instagrammable mega shakes and mega burgers. And I hate, I hate gluttony. And that was one of the things that forced me off the cruise ship, to be honest with you, when, Mm. you know, instead of taking one chocolate chip cookie, you're seeing these people taking 15. Mm. I find that so incredibly offensive. And the way that people jump behind some of these, some of these monstrosities that you see floating around these social media sites, it it grates my gears so hard because it shouldn't be about the quantity. It should be about the quality. That's for sure. So, that certainly bothers me a lot. I absolutely am absolutely with you on that one. Nice. Right. Favourite wine region. I know this is a hard one as well. Yeah, this is hard. I'm a, I'm a big Chardonnay and, and Pinot drinker, so I'm probably – and I, and I want to support Australia, so maybe Bannockburn. I think we often play the game. I've got a couple of real winey friends and we play the game frequently. Where or what vineyard would you choose if it was the only vineyard that you were ever allowed to buy wine from again? And it's it's hard because I could quite easily just drink – if I could afford it, just drink champagne for the rest of my life, but that's out of my budget. So I, I would probably say Bannockburn in, in Denver. Victoria would be one of my favourites, that's for sure. Okay, that's very specific. Right, so five people living or dead you'd invite to the ultimate dinner party. And this is a what really would, good What question. would you cook them? Oh, that's even harder. Okay, so five guests. My dad, well, I lost my dad 17 years ago and there's not a day that goes by that I don't think of him and he, he was my best mate, so he, he, I'd love to I'd love him to see what we've created on the Sunshine Coast because he had a business up here as well. Let's go Steve Jobs, just because it's Steve Jobs. Barack Obama, mm. Marco Pierre White, and maybe Joe Rogan. Ooh, um, that's an interesting choice, all, controversial. Yeah, all, <laughs> very. I think equal amount of people love and hate nearly every one of those guys, so <laughs> it would be cool to get them all around a dinner party. Uh, now, what would I cook for them? Um, I'd probably go something close to my heart, maybe some fresh pasta or risotto. If they were sitting around my table at home, then everybody that comes to my house for dinner gets a rotisserie chicken. I've got a great barbecue at home and I, I, I brine a beautiful chook from the hinterland and I stick it on the rotisserie and baste it every five minutes with brown butter and everybody that comes over sort of snarls when they go, we come over to a chef's house for dinner and you're giving us roast chicken and I'm like, but you just wait until you try it, you know, and I think the the, the simplicity and pulling something off that's so, I suppose, so workmanlike, it's it's cool when they walk away going, that's the best chicken I've ever tasted mm. in my life. So I'd probably do something like that or cook a barbecue or do something really super simple and make it all about the people around the table. Excellent answer. What about someone that you really admire and why? Uh, it can, can really be in admire. the chef world or can just be some anybody really. You know, I'd like to, I don't want it to sound cliche, but one of the people that I just look up to every single day and I probably owe a lot of success to is my wife, Melissa. She's seen the good, bad and ugly with me. I mean, she's seen a a business, I had my old business partner who's my best friend that that all went to custard and that probably needs a podcast of its own if we want to get into that. But my wife stood beside me and, you know, when I thought that I wasn't good enough and, you know, I was doubting my skill set and doubting basically everything. She was there every step of the way just saying that you can do it and the undying belief that she has in me is is 
it, it shines every day and we've got three beautiful kids at home and she looks up she's like an uber service to those guys and she's an inspiration she's a motivator for me every day when i get out of bed and i still look forward to to getting home and seeing her at three o'clock every day is sort of like the time when i sit back and go it's not long now i get to go home and see oh. my wife and my kids so i'm really lucky oh tony oh my god i hope my husband says such lovely things about me but somehow i doubt it well finally tony what's the best piece of advice anybody's ever given you ah jesus this is a tough one i guess um my dad always said my dad had a very successful crane hire business on the sunshine coast so he he, he was you know self-made he always used to say to me there's well, the world's divided amongst two different types of people people who think they deserve it and people that desire success now you've got to make a decision early on in the piece that nothing's ever going to be given to you so mm. if you really want something go and get it so make sure that rather than thinking you deserve it just mm. desire it enough and it will force you to get out of bed a bit earlier and and go and get it and also another thing that that he always told me was just to make sure that you surround yourself with people who are who are wiser than you and smarter than you. And I always say if I'm the smartest guy sitting around a table, there's a significant problem. So I've I've managed in our our little empire on the Sunshine Coast, I've managed to surround myself with with some of the industry's best and a lot of them are, are, are well smarter than what I am. And um, all, I, all I feel I do is provide them with a fantastic platform to express their 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 work on and you know and and if we can if we can give them enough enough of a stage to 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 show off on then success hopefully will will, won't be too far behind well it sounds like your dad has passed on some terrific ethics tony (laughs) thank you he's a he was a wise man that's for sure he sounds like it well that's it for this episode thank you so much to my wonderful guest tony kelly it was wonderful it's always good to talk to you tony but it was it was really interesting having a bit more of a deep dive today into your businesses and i appreciate your generosity in in sharing so much Oh, no worries, Natasha. It's great to catch up and um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and congratulations on the podcast. I love it. I love listening to it. Oh, thank you. And listeners, thank you as always for keeping me company. Until next time, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, you can follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe, rate and leave a review. And if you'd like to help support Extra Virgin and keep us ad free, please consider buying us a virtual coffee on the website www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com. 